In uh, 2010, I found out I had passed the bar exam and I set up my law office and it was a very exciting time launching a new venture. Uh, expecting everything would be onward and upward from then on, but to my surprise, things didn't go the way I expected. I wasn't very good at self-promotion. I was very good at getting clients who wouldn't pay me for the work I'd done. And then my mentor in the legal profession suddenly died. But on the day he died, I was first asked to teach Sunday school at the church I was attending. And over the next several months, it became clear to me the door for law practice had closed and the door to teach the Bible had opened. And within a few years, I was no longer a practicing attorney. I was in vocational ministry. And I start with this to, to illustrate a point today, which is you can be there at the start of a venture that you think is going to go in one direction, and it winds up going in a different direction. And I think that's really what today's passage, Matthew chapter 11, is about. Because for the past six and a half chapters of this book, uh, we have seen Jesus' early ministry in Galilee. He has called disciples. He has preached sermons. He has performed miracles. We have seen Jesus' fame grow. We have seen him surrounded by these massive crowds. It looks like things are going well. But when we come to chapters 11 and 12, we discover that, in fact, Jesus in Galilee is ultimately rejected. In today's passage, chapter 11, we're going to see that the common people turned against Jesus. And then in chapter 12, we're going to see that the Jewish religious leaders decisively reject Jesus. So today we're going to begin the conclusion of what we've seen for most of this year uh, as we look at Matthew 11, verses 2 through 27. And today we're going to see some sort of responses to Jesus' ministry, and then we're going to see how Jesus responds to these responses. So today we're going to see four points. First, we're going to see that Jesus encounters doubt, and he responds with answers. Second, Jesus speaks of faith, and he promises blessings. Third, Jesus exposes hard-hearted rejection, and he pronounces curses. And fourth, Jesus explains why some people believe while the rest do not. So let's start with our first point. And here we see that Jesus encounters doubt, and he responds with answers. And Jesus has been ministering in Galilee for some time, and he has been preaching what Matthew calls the gospel of the kingdom, saying, repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. That is, God has begun to decisively assert his dominion over this rebellious world by sending the Messiah, and so people must turn from their life of sin and trust in the Messiah. That is Jesus' message. And to authenticate this message, Jesus has been performing wonders which have drawn a lot of interest in Galilee and beyond. But Jesus knows as large as these crowds are that are always pressing in upon him, there are still so many desperate people out there who need to hear about him, who he has not yet reached, and he can't get to them all by himself. And so Jesus sends his disciples out to the towns of Galilee, preaching the same message he has been preaching, performing the same miracles he's been performing. And while the disciples go on this journey, Jesus then continues his ministry solo for a while. But at some point, they all get back together. Matthew doesn't say anything about this, but Mark and Luke briefly mention it. Mark 6.30 says, The apostles returned to Jesus and told him all that they had done and taught. So the disciples worked hard, but we're not yet told how their trip went. We'll see that in a few minutes. But now Matthew begins to conclude his narrative about Jesus' early ministry in Galilee by pointing us back to someone we haven't seen in several chapters. Look at chapter 11, verse 2. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or shall we look for another? Now here's John the Baptist, and he's been in prison since chapter 4. But now we learn that while he's incarcerated, John has been hearing about Jesus, who's been informing him. Well, these verses tell us that even though he was in prison, John was communicating with his disciples still. John still had a movement out there. And some of John's followers are talking to him, and they're talking in part about Jesus. And what are they saying? Well, for one thing, they're talking about Jesus' deeds, his preaching, his miracles. But what else would they have told John? You might remember back in chapter 9, 
John's disciples find themselves in conflict with Jesus because Jesus attended a controversial feast, which was also attended by a number of people that society considered disreputable. And not only did Jesus eat with disreputable people, but he feasted with them on a day that conservative Jews had marked for fasting. And so John's disciples confronted Jesus. Why don't you fast, they said. And you know this conflict would have been reported to the Baptist. And it would have generated many questions. Why is the Messiah hanging out with sinners? John didn't know that Jesus was evangelizing them. Why isn't the Christ fasting? John didn't know Jesus was beginning something new and not just perpetuating Jewish tradition. But beyond the doubts that these reports would have raised, John would have had another question too. Back when he was preaching, John said things like this, Matthew 3.10, Even now, the axe is laid to the root of the tree. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. He who is coming after me is mightier than I. His winnowing fork is in his hand, and the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. John said the Messiah is coming, so repent. And if you don't repent, the Messiah will execute God's wrath upon you. And so John hears Jesus is out there, but he's not destroying the unrighteous. Where's the judgment? Where's the judgment upon the wicked people who were keeping John in prison unjustly? So John is in a position of doubt, wondering, is Jesus who I thought he was? And friends, that's amazing. Because back in chapter 3, John had heard the voice of the Father acclaiming Jesus. John had sent his own disciples to follow Jesus. But now after so much time has passed in prison, and after so many things have gone differently than John expected, he's not sure what to think. And so he sends disciples, two of them, Luke tells us, to go ask Jesus plainly, are you the Messiah? Now, John is in this place of uncertainty and doubt. And frankly, I find this encouraging because in a minute, Jesus is going to say John is the greatest person who was ever born prior to the New Testament age. And if the godliest person who ever lived up until then, a man whose whole life was marked by unflinching faith and obedience in God, if even he could find himself perplexed and questioning at times, then I think we can't be too hard on ourselves when we have doubts or when we have questions that we want to pose to God. Questions that come from hard doctrines which we may not understand. Questions that come from bad things that we may experience. Friends, it's okay to have questions and to wrestle with theological and emotional doubt. John wrestled with these things here. And in our lives, sometimes we will encounter circumstances that make us wrestle with these things. And friends, we need to know that questions and doubt aren't in themselves sin. Uh, but if we're dealing with them, what we need to do is learn from John here. Because how does John deal with his questions and his doubt? He takes them to Jesus. And he is willing to listen to the answers that Jesus will give him. And friends, that's the right way for us to deal with our doubts too. So John sends his questions to Jesus. How will Jesus respond? Will he give a stinging rebuke? How dare you question me? No. Instead, Jesus demonstrates what the book of Jude says we should do when we deal with someone who is doubting. Jude 22 says, have mercy on those who doubt. And Jesus mercifully helps John by reminding him of some things that he knew to be true, by pointing him back to the scriptures and giving him a very clear biblical answer. So is Jesus the Messiah? Look at verse 4. And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up, and the poor have the good news preached to them. Jesus points John to the miracles that he has performed. Now, the miracles Jesus mentions here are the miracles we saw back in chapters 8 and 9. Jesus healed two blind men. He made a paralyzed man walk. He cleansed a leper. He restored a deaf man's hearing. He raised Jairus' daughter from the dead. And on top of just reciting miracles from the past, Luke tells us at this point Jesus also performed some new miracles so that John's uh, disciples could see them for themselves. 
And beyond that, Jesus then says, I'm also preaching the good news. I'm preaching the gospel. He is continuing to proclaim the message John had proclaimed. And this message has been received by those whom Jesus called back in chapter 5, the poor in spirit. Those who recognize their utter dependence on God, their total inability to save themselves. And so Jesus points John to what he has been doing. Why? Because what Jesus has been doing is exactly what the Old Testament says the Messiah would do. Isaiah 61 prophesies that the Messiah could say, The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And Jesus says, that's what I'm doing. He's doing what the Messiah is to do. Isaiah 35, which we read just a minute ago, describes an age of restoration to come. The Messianic age. Behold, your God will come with vengeance, with the recompense of God. He will come and save you. Then the eyes of the blind shall be opened, the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. This passage says, look, God will deal with this world. He will condemn unrepentant rebels. And we're going to talk about judgment in a few minutes. But he will also save his people and inaugurate amazing transformation and restoration in a new creation. And throughout his ministry in Galilee, Jesus has demonstrated that very power, the power of the age to come by healing the worst diseases and raising the dead. And this is the answer Jesus gives to John. I'm doing what the scripture says the Messiah will do. So yes, Jesus is the Messiah. And Jesus concludes with this, verse 6, and blessed is the one who is not offended by me. John had believed in Jesus, and Jesus says, continue believing. Yes, Jesus' Messiahship looked different than John thought it would. That doesn't mean Jesus wasn't the Messiah. It means John's presuppositions about what the Messiah would do were inaccurate. And so Jesus says to John, don't let that stumble you. Continue in faith. Now, believers, I think we find here in this first point an excellent pattern for us because we will invariably throughout this life encounter people who have doubts, and we should answer them as Jesus does, acknowledging their questions are legitimate, pointing them to the scriptures, giving the best biblical answers that we can, and then urging them to continue in the faith. That's what Jesus did for John, who had doubts, which Jesus answered. We come now to our second point, and here we see that Jesus speaks about faith and promises blessings. Look at verse 7. And as they, John's disciples, went away, Jesus began to speak to the crowds concerning John. What did you go out into the wilderness to see? A reed shaken by the wind? What then did you go out to see? A man dressed in soft clothing? Behold, those who wear soft clothing are in king's houses. What then did you go out to see? A prophet? Yes, I tell you, and more than a prophet. This is he of whom it was written, Behold, I send my messenger before your face, who will prepare your way for you. All right, now, verse 7 seems to indicate that this interaction between Jesus and John's people took place in front of the crowds who have been following Jesus. And this interaction must have surprised the crowds who were so taken with Jesus' power seems to have caused some murmuring among them. John wants to ask questions about Jesus. How dare he? Jesus is our favorite wonder worker. And I think this is what's going on because what Jesus says here really has a, a sense of wanting to defend John in the, in the first section here. And so Jesus begins his defense by saying to the crowds, don't dismiss John. It wasn't so long ago you guys liked John. You guys wanted to go out to the wilderness and see John by the thousands. And Jesus said, why did you do that? It wasn't because John was unstable or fickle like grass blown about in the wind. That's not what John was about. That's not why John is asking Jesus questions. John's not some indecisive, inconsistent fellow. The crowds knew that. That's why they liked John back in the day, or at least why they wanted to see him. In the same way, John wasn't some soft man of self-indulgence. If they wanted someone like that, they could just look to their own politicians, Jesus says. But the crowds wouldn't have gone anywhere to see that. No, Jesus says the crowds went out to see John because they knew he was unique. They knew he was legitimate. He was like the prophets of old. 
who hadn't been seen in centuries. And Jesus says, that's right. John was God's prophet. But more than that, John was also the fulfillment of God's word. And here, Jesus quotes from Malachi 3.1, where God says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple. Malachi, the last prophet of the Old Testament, said a time was coming when God himself would suddenly appear among his people. But before that took place, there would be a forerunner, a messenger, who would prepare the people for this visit from God. And who was this messenger to be? Well, God said in Malachi 4.5, Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. God said that Elijah, the famous prophet from the Old Testament, who spoke against Ahab and Jezebel, who performed mighty wonders, who never tasted death but ascended into heaven in a chariot of fire, he would return before this visitation. And Israel understood this to mean that Elijah was this promised messenger who would prepare the people of God for a visit from God himself. All right, now that's the background. Look at now verse 11 of our text. Jesus says, Truly I say to you, among those born of women there has arisen no one greater than John the Baptist. Yet the one who is least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he, that is John the Baptist. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. For all the prophets and the law prophesied until John, and if you are willing to accept it, he is Elijah who is to come. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. This is a tough passage. Let's go through it slowly. In verse 14, Jesus says the whole Old Testament is prophetic. The prophets prophesied, so did the law. This is an idea we saw back in chapter 5. When Jesus said, I have not come to abolish the law or prophets, but to fulfill them. Jesus says he is the fulfillment of the whole Old Testament. The prophets said he would come. The law described the righteous life he would live. Jesus is the culmination of all of the hopes and expectations of the Old Testament. And since, since that's true, Jesus is the authoritative interpreter of the Old Testament. If it's all about him, he can say what it's all about. And now he does that. He interprets Malachi 3 and 4. And what does he say? These prophecies have been fulfilled. The Lord has sent his forerunner to prepare the way before the Lord himself comes. And by making this association, don't miss this, Jesus is implying that he is God in the flesh. And Jesus says for those who will accept it, those who are open to what God is actually doing, John the Baptist was the second coming of Elijah. Now that might surprise us. Because those of us who hold a more literal interpretation of the Bible might read Malachi 4 and think, well, this means God's actually going to send the man Elijah back from heaven to the earth. But Jesus says here that is not the fulfillment of this prophecy. John the Baptist is not the man who got into a chariot of fire 900 years earlier. In fact, in John's Gospel, chapter 1, we read that the crowds asked John, are you Elijah? And he said, I am not. John the Baptist was not literally Elijah. But in Luke 1, it is prophesied about John that he will go before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah. And in that sense, he was Elijah. He was an Elijah for the first century. He was bringing Elijah's faith and moral courage, speaking words of truth on God's behalf, calling for national repentance, speaking truth to wicked kings like the king had had him in prison, preparing people for the visitation of the Lord. And Jesus says John is the fulfillment of these prophecies about Elijah. And so in that sense, then, yes, John is more than a prophet. Yeah, yes, he's a prophet, but more than that, he's also the fulfillment of prophecy. And in this unique role as the promised forerunner, Jesus can say up to this point, through the whole era of Old Testament Israel, John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born because he held this amazingly important position. It was John who first preached that the Messiah had come. It was John who first publicly identified who the Messiah is. 
And yet while John occupied this significant position, making him the greatest of the old era, now something new has come. John himself said the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The kingdom has dawned because the king has come, because Jesus has come. And Jesus has, has said not only has the kingdom begun to come, but those who respond rightly to him presently have a share in this kingdom. Matthew 5, 3, Jesus said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is, present tense, the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize our inability to save ourselves and cast ourselves on Jesus, we're totally dependent on Jesus. Jesus says, we are the people who presently have a share of the kingdom, who will on the last day inherit the kingdom in its fullness. And Jesus says here in verse 11, that everyone in this situation, every believer, everybody who is part of the kingdom, occupies an amazing position of blessing. Because while John the Baptist was the greatest person born in the era of Old Testament Israel, Jesus now says that the weakest, sorriest believer occupies a better position than John had. You say, wow, how can that be? Because John's greatness was a function of his role. He was the first to preach the Messiah's coming. He was the first to identify the Messiah. But friends, as we've already seen today, John didn't have a full understanding of God's plan for Jesus. That's why he got so confused when he saw what was going on. He didn't really grasp the big picture. But on this side of the cross, every believer, even the sorriest believer, knows much more than John knew. Because to be a believer today means we confess that Jesus is both truly God and truly man. That Jesus died in our place as a substitute for our sin to reconcile us to God. That Jesus rose from the dead bodily, opening the door to eternal life and forgiveness, not just for repentant Israelites, but for all who believe. John didn't grasp any of that. And so, friends, we have a better proclamation than John did. We have a better grasp on who Jesus is than John could. And so what I want us to see here is this, friends. It's so easy to read the Old Testament sometimes and think, wow, they had it so much better than we do because they had all these miracles they could see. And they had prophets who could hear the, the words of God. But friends, don't believe that for a second. Don't envy the ancients because the ancients would envy you. If you're a believer, you have the indwelling Holy Spirit. You have not just the Old Testament. You have the New Testament. You have the doctrine of the apostles fully revealing God's eternal plan and purposes. You have a more direct relationship to the Father than ancient Israel ever had through the Levitical priesthood because of who we have, what our, our standing in Christ. You have a better understanding of Jesus, and beyond that, you have a relationship with him. Friends, we are at no disadvantage to the ancients. They are at an absolute disadvantage compared to every believer of the church age. And that's why Jesus can say, even the weakest believer is greater than John the Baptist, because we occupy this immensely blessed position. But while believers occupy this position of blessing, that doesn't mean that life will be easy. Because look at verse 12. Jesus says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has suffered violence, and the violent take it by force. This is not an easy verse to understand. And the difficulties here uh, have led to a, a number of translations in the, in the various English versions. Um, the difficulties relate here to Greek grammar and uh, issues related to word study. And I'm not going to get into the weeds too much, but let me say this. This is not, as some people have claimed, a verse about the advance of the kingdom of God. Because the noun in verse 12 translated violent is always a negative connotation noun. Okay, so this is not a reference to believers. This is a reference to unbelievers. God's kingdom has begun to dawn through the preaching of John and the coming of Jesus. But the unrighteous have violently opposed it. They want to destroy it and plunder it. They want to stumble and harm and kill the people of God. Intense opposition has risen up. And Jesus has said much about this in chapter 10, right? We just talked about this for weeks. Opposition from governments and religious leaders and family members that leads to beatings and martyrdoms. Opposition has arisen. That's why John's in prison. And that's what Jesus is going to talk about in the next few verses, more opposition. But before we get there, I think what we see in our second point here is a, a right response to Jesus. 
the response of repentant faith. And this is a response that sees Jesus as who he is. He is the fulfillment of the Old Testament. He is the Messiah. He is God in the flesh. He is our King who reveals God's will and word who we must obey, even if it costs us everything, even if it costs us our lives. And Jesus says that people who respond to him with true faith belong to him and have a share in his kingdom and enjoy this amazing position of blessing. Because as Paul said in Ephesians 3, we have insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations as it has now been revealed. And we probably don't think much about this. We probably take our knowledge of God and his ways for granted. We think, well, Israel had it kind of the same way we do, right? No, no, friends in Christ, we have a much superior position to anything they had. We occupy a position of amazing blessing. And so indeed we can say the response of true faith to, G to Jesus leads <coughs> to immense blessing. But while Jesus extends blessing to believers, tragically vast numbers of people remain on the broad road to destruction. And that's what we see now in our third point. As Jesus exposes hard-hearted rejection and pronounces curses. Jesus continues to speak to the crowd. Verse 16. But to what shall I compare this generation? It's like children sitting in the marketplaces and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, but you did not dance. We sang a dirge, but you did not mourn. So Jesus has been talking about John the Baptist and his unique role in starting the, the, the endeavor that Jesus is the fulfillment of. And, and now Jesus is going to reveal the true response that both he and John got from the people of Galilee. And he begins with an illustration taken from the world of children's games. Jesus says it's like he and John the Baptist were little kids, sitting in the market calling out to the other kids, let's play a game. Let's play a dancing game. Let's dance to the flute. But the other kids wouldn't respond. So they said, well, if you're sad, let's play a different kind of game. Let's play a mourning game. But again, the kids won't play. And the idea is this, friends. It doesn't matter what Jesus and John propose. The crowd won't respond appropriately. And now Jesus explains this plainly. Verse 18, he says, For John came, neither eating nor drinking, and they say, He has a demon. John lived a very hard and self-denying lifestyle in the wilderness. He didn't throw many parties out there, right? His food was locusts and wild honey. An austere existence. An austerity continued by his disciples who were into fasting, right? And when God's word came through John, came through this minister of austerity and self-denial, what happened? Well, the people rejected it, Jesus says. Not all of them, of course, but Luke 7 tells us that many influential people, the lawyers and the Pharisees, rejected John. And many, many other people who rejected John. And Jesus tells us what excuse they used to reject John. They said John was demonized. Well, you know, John, he has such an odd lifestyle. It's not godly. It's madness. He must have a demon. So the crowds want somebody less austere, right? They want somebody who enjoys himself a bit more, right? What's Jesus say? Look at verse 19. The Son of Man, as Jesus, came eating and drinking. And they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. And Jesus didn't fast very much, we've said before. His movement wasn't austere. It was a movement of joy, characterized by feasting. And what kind of a response did that get? Was that more acceptable to the people? Did it produce better results? No. Even though Jesus came in a very different way than John came, he got the same response John did, which was rejection. And the people who claimed that John was too odd and austere now say, well, Jesus is too self-indulgent. They falsely charge him with being a glutton and a drunkard and hanging out with sinners. You know, you know they were criticizing John for living in isolation. They said, well, J Jesus is too friendly with sinners. And what Jesus is saying here is showing us a really important truth, friends, which is that a lot of lost people really just want to stay lost. They are hard-hearted. They don't want to hear the gospel. They don't want to believe. And we will not win these sorts of folks just by changing our methods. 
This is a big lie that has been believed in American Christianity for the last 30 years. If we just find the right presentation, if we just package the gospel the right way, all these lost people, their eyes will suddenly be opened, and they're going to want Jesus. That's false, friends. Now, I've got to tell you, new methods might see improved results if what we're offering is something other than the gospel. But if we're actually preaching the gospel, we need to understand the response we get is not a result of a method we use. And when people reject what we're saying, it isn't because, oh, our method was off. It's because hard-hearted people will always find an excuse to justify their rejection of God's word. And if you think you've solved some of their complaints here, they'll manufacture other complaints over there so that they always have a reason to not bend the knee to God. And that's what's going on here. They criticize John for one thing, and they criticize Jesus for doing the exact opposite of what John did. But you know what Jesus says, verse 19? Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. In the end, this criticism of John and Jesus don't matter. It will be exposed as false. God will vindicate Jesus and John. They used different methods, but they both spoke the truth, and God honors that. Now, all of this talk about rejection might surprise us. Because through the last several chapters, while we've seen that religious elites opposed Jesus, we haven't really gotten the sense that the common people were against him. In fact, we might think, well, the crowd seemed to be getting bigger and bigger. Jesus' ministry is being embraced, not rejected. But what Jesus says now leaves no doubt as to the general response of the people in Galilee to his ministry. Look at verse 20. Then he began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. And Jesus had gone through many of the cities of Galilee, probably more than once. He had sent his disciples on a preaching tour throughout Galilee. And the gospel had been proclaimed again and again. And it had been authenticated through the performance of astonishing miracles. And these weren't just like tricks, magic tricks. These weren't even authentic, cool miracles like the stuff from the Old Testament. What Jesus did was unparalleled. The crowd said back in chapter 9, never was anything like this seen in Israel. And they were totally right about that. But despite seeing this overwhelming evidence that proves who Jesus was, what happened? The vast majority of people in this region reject Jesus and his message. You see, friends, the crowds came because they wanted their sicknesses healed and they wanted their bellies filled, but they were not willing to actually heed Jesus' demands. They wanted Jesus to be their genie and serve them. But Jesus had come to call them to repent, and that they would not do. They wanted the benefits of Jesus while being able to ignore the demands of Jesus, and that is rejecting Jesus. And now Jesus singles out three towns that probably had more exposure to him than any other towns in Galilee, and Jesus condemns them for their rejection. And he tells them where it's going to lead them, to the curse of God and eternal condemnation. Look at verse 21. Jesus says, Woe to you, Chorazin! Woe to you, Bethsaida! For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you, it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. There are three towns Jesus names here. Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum, and, and they're all located pretty close to each other. And this, these three towns basically have been the central hub of Jesus' ministry. And John's Gospel tells us that three of Jesus' disciples came from Bethsaida, and Capernaum had basically become Jesus' adopted hometown, and the site of most of the miracles we've seen in this book. So these towns would have had amazing exposure to Jesus and his preaching and his, his miracles and his disciples. And yet, despite all of that exposure, they rejected Jesus. And in response, Jesus says, judgment is coming upon all who hard-heartedly reject him. 
We said earlier, John the Baptist was surprised that Jesus did not bring God's wrath in his first appearing. That's because we're going to see in the coming chapters. Jesus' first appearing in this world was not about bringing God's wrath. It was about receiving God's wrath. But in the end, make no mistake, he will bring God's wrath upon the unrepentant. A day of judgment is coming, friends. And when this day comes, the torments of hell will befall the unrepentant. And Jesus has warned about this throughout this whole book. And Jesus says, and, and this is so important, friends, listen to this. Jesus says the intensity of wrath that people will experience is proportionate to the amount of truth that they have knowingly rejected. And Jesus draws some comparisons in these verses. He says that the towns of Chorazin and Bethsaida are to be compared to the cities of Tyre and Sidon. In the Old Testament, the prophets often spoke against Tyre and Sidon as places of evil and pride. But Jesus says evil places like Tyre and Sidon, as wicked as they were, would have repented if they had gotten to see the ministry of Jesus. And because uh, Chorazin and Bethsaida experienced a greater demonstration of the truth than Tyre and Sidon did, and because they rejected what they knew, Jesus says condemnation will fall more heavily upon Chorazin and Bethsaida than upon Tyre and Sidon. In the same way, Jesus compares his adopted hometown of Capernaum to two cities. First, Jesus compares Capernaum to Babylon. If you know anything about the Bible, you know Babylon is basically like the ultimate place of evil, right? They might say, well, I don't see the word Babylon here. That's okay. What you need to know is that most of what Jesus says to Capernaum here comes from Isaiah 14. And Isaiah 14 is a text in which God denounces a wicked king of Babylon for his pride. And so Jesus uses that language and says to Capernaum, that's like you. But then, even more shockingly, Jesus compares Capernaum, this little fishing town where Jesus lived for a while. Seemed like a nice place, right? He says, no, it's like Sodom a city whose name has become synonymous with iniquity, a city that Jude says is an example of eternal judgment in that God rained fire and sulfur upon them and destroyed them. And Jesus says, if wicked Sodom had seen Jesus' ministry, they would have repented. But Capernaum did not repent, and therefore they are guiltier than Sodom. And that aggravated guilt leads to an aggravated sentence. Now, here are some things we need to know. Number one, friends, we need to know that the coming of Christ to this world has intensified the stakes of this life. Just as those who have faith in Jesus experience greater blessing than the people in the Old Testament did, those who reject Jesus today, especially those of us who knowingly reject Jesus today, are liable to much greater penalty than the wicked people of the Old Testament. You think Ahab and Jezebel are bad? They're not going to be judged nearly as badly as a lot of people today, especially a lot of prominent people in the American evangelical church. Second, friends, and this is a truth that we ignore to our peril. We need to know there are degrees of punishment in hell, just as there are degrees of reward in the new creation. And punishment is worse for those who had access to more truth and rejected what they knew. And this is a warning, friends. It is a warning to us. I could talk about our society here. How our society has had more access to the Bible than any society in history. How we have more access today to sound theological works and good preaching than any society in history. And yet we have turned our back on the truth. We have embraced iniquity and moral anarchy as a society. So we should expect unparalleled judgment to fall upon our society as a result of this. But beyond speaking about corporate judgment, let me speak to us individually. Many of us in this room have grown up in godly households that taught us to fear the Lord. Many of us have spent the better part of our lives in churches and heard a lot of faithful preaching, whether here or somewhere else. And friends, we have heard the truth about Christ, and so we are without excuse. And every week that we come to church and hear the Bible taught again and hear the gospel proclaimed again, we are made more and more without excuse because we have heard more and more truth. And, then, and if after all of this at the end we still harden our hearts and reject Jesus, 
we must expect not only judgment, but the most intense forms of condemnation. We need to know today that when Jesus says repent, he means it. Friends, I implore you, especially if you've been hanging around Christianity and churches for a long time, do not play games with Jesus. There is this idea today in the American church that repentance is optional and that Jesus is selling fire insurance and that we can pray a prayer and get eternal security and go live however we want and boy, that Jesus is a sucker and I got one over on him and now he's got to let me in because I prayed that prayer, you know. Friends, do not believe that lie for a minute. That was the attitude of the crowds and the towns of Galilee. We want Jesus' blessings, but not his lordship. And we see here where that, where that leads. It is a hard-hearted rejection of Jesus, which leads to the eternal curse of God in hell. And so Jesus answers those who doubt, he blesses those who believe, and he curses those who hard-heartedly reject him. But we come now to our last point, and here we see why Jesus, where here we see Jesus tells us why some people believe while the rest don't. Friends, in the end, Matthew 7 tells us there's only two roads. There's only two gates. There are only two outcomes in this life. And why is it some people wind up in one place and some people wind up in the other? What is it that distinguishes believers from unbelievers in the end? It's not our intellect. It's not that believers are smarter. It's not our effort. It's not that believers work harder. It's not our kindness. It's not that we're nicer. It's not our innate righteousness that we sin less or the sins we do are less severe. It's not our own free will choices. It's not that believers are predisposed to making wiser decisions than unbelievers. Listen to what Jesus says in verse 25. At that time, Jesus declared, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and understanding and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for such was your gracious will. All things have been handed over to me by my Father, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son, and anyone to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Jesus' words here are very plain. The Father is sovereign over all things, heaven and earth, and salvation. And the Father wills, he chooses to do two things. First, he hides these truths from some people. That is, he judicially hardens some people as an act of judgment. He chooses not to allow these people to understand the reality and the authenticity and the urgency of the gospel as judgment upon the wise, the Pharisees and the scribes and the know-it-alls. But second, the Father also chooses to reveal these same truths to other people. That's very clearly what Jesus says here. What's more, Jesus says, I have a unique relationship to the Father. Jesus says, I know the Father exhaustively, and I'm the only one that does, and he knows me in a unique way. But Jesus says that his relationship to the Father is something that he can bring other people into as he chooses to do so. This is why no one comes to the Father but by Jesus, because only Jesus can connect sinful man to holy God. And so it is this free choice made by Jesus which in the end determines who gets to know the Father in a saving way, which determines who will exercise saving faith and who will not. So it is not our merit, our excellence, our goodness, our virtue, our insight, our wisdom, or our great decision-making that saves us. It is the outworking of the will of God which causes some people to believe and causes others not to. Now this is known as the doctrine of election. And this is an amazingly controversial doctrine throughout Christian history. It remains controversial in our own time. But what's interesting about this controversy is it's not really an exegetical controversy. If you look up all the passages about election in the New Testament, you're going to find they're pretty much just as clear as this one is. This isn't an issue of, wow, this is a vague text. I don't know what to make of it. These passages are clear on their face. No, the controversy about election comes from its implications. People hear this doctrine and we don't like it. First, because it doesn't seem fair to us. In our culture, we have this very strong notion of fair play. 
We think everyone is entitled to an equal opportunity for success. And so when we read that God has hidden the truth from some people and revealed it to others, that violates our sense of fair play, and we think, well, this seems like God is unjust. Second, I think people bristle at election because ultimately we want to believe that we are in charge of our own destiny, that our choices are decisive. So if I'm saved, it's because I have chosen well, and if I'm lost, it's because I have chosen poorly, and that seems equitable to us. And so we resist this idea that God's choice is what is all important. And we think, well, if God's choice is what's really important, why doesn't God choose to save everybody? And this isn't academic. We may struggle with, why doesn't God seem to have chosen my unbelieving family member or friends? This is a hard doctrine. And because of these objections, there have been attempts to contort the scriptures to engage in absurd exegetical gymnastics, to avoid the plain meaning of the election texts. Or we just write election off, well, it's just too mysterious for us to understand. We ignore the subject and pretend like it's not written on the page. But friends, the Bible talks about this many times. And we must try to understand what God has said and to believe what God has revealed. And so it is not for us to ignore something that God has revealed or to redefine it because we find it unpalatable. Let me say a few words about this doctrine of election. Friends, the humanity is a fallen and cursed race. We are the heirs of Adam and Eve. Ephesians 2 says we are dead in our trespasses and sins. Their separation from God is our inheritance from them. We are all born in a state of alienation from God. Romans 3 says, none is righteous, no, not one, no one understands, no one seeks for God. No one pursues God in their natural condition. Listen to this one. In our natural state, we are incapable of apprehending spiritual truth. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, for he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This is why man's natural response to the gospel is to reject it, because sin has comprehensively corrupted us. This is why the people of Capernaum could see Jesus working and reject him, because this is the natural wretched response of people. Now God in his grace has sent his son to live the perfect live we can't, life we can't live, to die the death we deserve, to rise from death in victory. And in consequence of Jesus' work, God has made a fair, good faith, sincere offer to the whole world. In Acts 17, Paul says, God commands all people everywhere to repent, turn to Christ and live. But because of our fallenness, nobody will do this apart from the intervention of God. But thank God he intervenes. He regenerates some of us. He gives us the clarity Jesus describes in these verses. He shows us our need for redemption. He empowers us to respond to the gospel with faith. God graciously chooses to save some of us. And we don't know why God has chosen whom he has chosen. We can't know why God saves some other rather than all. There is a sense in which it can be truly said of God. As 2 Peter 3 says, He is not wishing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. But the Bible also indicates in passages like this one that God has only decreed the election of some. We may not, we may not like that. We may not understand it, but we are not God. His ways and thoughts are higher than ours. His plan is his plan for a reason. And if we claim to have faith, we must trust him. We must trust his plan and his wisdom. Friends, the judge of all the earth will do what is right. And he work, will work out all things for his glory and for his people's good. And so he reveals the truth to some people. And as an act of judgment, he hardens others. And that's the truth of election. Now, we may find this difficult. We may feel like John the Baptist, filled with doubt and struggling about this. And that's okay. Take your questions and doubts to Jesus. Search the scriptures. Read them honestly. And believe what the Bible says, not what we want it to say. But Jesus tells us in the end it is the intervention of God that explains why some believe and while the rest do not. Now, don't fall into the error of thinking that this truth justifies laziness on our part. This should not make us slothful. It should encourage us to action. 
It should encourage us to pray for the lost because we have an all-controlling God who we can ask to intervene. It should make us energetic to evangelize the lost because it is the proclamation of the gospel that God uses to bring about his elective purposes in this world. Romans 10 says faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. And how are they to hear without someone preaching? So don't let this truth make you lazy. Also, don't let this truth make you angry. Don't let it stumble you. For the scripture warns very clearly in Romans 9, who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Election is not to lead us to laziness. It is not to lead us to presumptuously sit in judgment of God and complain. Instead, I want to leave you here with the response Jesus gives to this truth in our passage. And this is the response we should have, which is that Jesus thanks the Father and praises him for his gracious will. And that should be our response today if we belong to Christ. Praise to him for his grace towards us because we don't deserve his salvation. And he has been immensely kind to us if we belong to him to reveal the truth about Jesus to us and bring us to himself. So to conclude, today, if you have never come to Christ, you need to know you are dead in your sins. You remain under judgment. And if God has enabled you to understand this sermon today, do not harden your heart towards him because it will just make you liable to greater judgment. Stop making excuses. Repent and live. Today, if you are struggling, if you have doubts, I want you to know Jesus loves you and it's okay to ask questions. Nobody's going to judge you for that. We want to point you to the truth. Look to the scriptures. Believe the scriptures and have great confidence in Jesus. But today, if you are firm in your faith, then rejoice because of the salvation God has given us through Christ. Because he has allowed us to occupy a position of unparalleled blessing throughout the history of the world, far beyond anything that anybody in the Old Testament enjoyed. Friends, God has lavished kindness upon us in his grace, and he will continue to lavish it across all the ages. May all glory be to him. Amen.